Listener supported. WNYC Studios. There were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. We begin today talking about interference. Over the course of my career, I have seen a number of challenges to our democracy. The Russian government's effort to interfere in our election is among the most serious. That, of course, is former special counsel Robert Mueller, who testified earlier this week in front of the House Judiciary Committee. Later that same day, in a hearing before the House Intelligence Committee, Mueller stressed that this Russian meddling was not a single attempt, and he warned... Uh, They're doing it as we sit here, and they expect to do it uh, 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 during the, the next campaign. Now, if you turn on cable news or scroll through Twitter, the conversation, however, is dominated by this. From the Democratic perspective, to me so far, it's been a bit of a bust. Bob Mueller's grasp and presentation of the underlying facts was not very detailed. The shortcoming is in appearing to not know basic fact patterns. So look, on optics, this was a disaster. But he directly refuted the president's notion that he had been exonerated. That's what I mean. On substance, they got what they wanted out of him. And this. Mueller made clear that the president is not exonerated. I do believe that what we saw today was a very strong indictment of this administration's cone of silence. I think the story of the 2016 election is really a story of disloyalty to country, about greed and about lies. It is a moment which people will be talking about and reading about three, four hundred, five hundred years from now. There's far less discussion about how to prevent these efforts to undermine our democracy. On Thursday, the Senate Intel Committee released its own report about how widespread Russian hacking attempts in our elections have been. That news has not gotten the wall-to-wall cable TV coverage that the Mueller hearings got. But it's not just our election system that's under attack. These threats undermine our core democratic values, and increasingly, these bad actors are targeting institutions that don't get that much attention. True. So let's talk about it. It's really important that folks understand this is, first of all, not just about elections, but really about attacks on other democratic institutions and on democracy itself. That's Suzanne Spaulding. She's the former Undersecretary for Cyber and Infrastructure Protection at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. She's also a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where she leads the Defending Democratic Institutions Project. In other words, Spalding's on a mission to counter the spread of this disinformation, but her focus is beyond what's happening at the ballot box. You know, when I was the undersecretary in the Department of Homeland Security responsible for cybersecurity and election infrastructure, obviously we spent much of 2016 working hard with our federal colleagues and state and local election officials to secure our election infrastructure. But I, I did so knowing that Uh, This was part of a broader campaign and a longer-term campaign to undermine democracy. So when I got out in 2017, I decided to, you know, sort of do a little mental red teaming. Okay, so red teaming, that's basically security speak for challenging the effectiveness and security of a system. So what was the question that Spalding asked? If I were Putin and I wanted to undermine democracy and, and trust in democratic institutions, where would I go next? What other institution 
is as dependent on public trust and confidence in the legitimacy of its processes to have credibility in the outcomes that it produces. And I immediately thought about the justice system and our courts. Spalding hadn't heard of anything about these types of attacks targeting the justice system and thought for once they'd been able to get ahead of it. That optimism was short-lived when a bit of research turned up the Lisa case. It was a story in Berlin, Germany, where a young girl named Lisa, who was 16 years old of Russian heritage, made an allegation that she'd been abducted and raped by, she used the word Southerners, everyone understood that to mean immigrants. The authorities took her in and started, uh, you know, trying to get more information about this, and she pretty quickly uh, admitted that she'd made the whole thing up. She'd spent the night with a friend, she was afraid to tell her parents, so she made up this story. But what happened in the interim, before authorities could really get out with the true story, is that Russian state-sponsored media picked up on this story and began to beat the drums. And when the German authorities, again, uh, came out and said they were not going to move forward with the prosecution because there was no crime that had been committed, the Russians, including Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia, as well as state-sponsored media, and on uh, social media online, accused the prosecutor, the 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 uh, authorities of covering this crime up, of sweeping it under the rug, to to distract people from their soft on immigrants policy, and in fact, it got so wound up and and was so insightful, and I use that with a C, that they were they turned protesters out into the streets all across Germany, protesting the failure to prosecute this crime that never happened. So that was Germany in January of 2016. And if you fast forward six months, now we're in the summer of 2016 and Twin Falls, Idaho, where we had a, a situation in which social media was full of allegations that in Twin Falls, Idaho, two Syrian refugees had raped a young girl at knife point and were later high-fiving their dads. Welcome to the News at 10. This Monday, we begin with a sexual assault investigation going on in Twin Falls. Rumors of an alleged incident involving Syrian refugees made big waves on social media over the weekend. Again, the authorities quickly determined that these were wildly uh, exaggerated and false allegations. There were three young people in the basement of a building and something uh, very untoward happened, but there were no Syrian refugees involved. There was no knife. There was no high-fiving of the dads. These were embellishments that were designed, again, to incite and because the case involved juveniles, the authorities were unfortunately slow to get the actual facts out because there are privacy restrictions on what they can say when a case involves juveniles. So again, social media erupting with attacks on the prosecutor, on the judge, whose picture was ultimately posted in home, phone, and address, and received lots of death threats, that the allegations that, that, the, that they were failing to prosecute these Syrian refugees and failing to put citizens over refugees. And the mainstream media's first instinct is to dismiss the story and label local residents racist bigots and Islamophobes. Lots of Twitter activity, including, of course, from trolls in the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, Russia, who jumped on this and, and promoted and pushed and amplified uh, this story. And suddenly there is this group called Secured Borders calling for a, 
a rally in the streets, protests in the streets against officials who should be fired for putting Syrian refugees above safety of citizens. And of course, Secured Borders was not a group of concerned uh, Twin Falls, Idaho citizens, but a group made up by the Internet Research Agency in Russia. What Putin does is picks up on weaknesses and vulnerabilities of our own making. They're not inventing these narratives that they're pushing, uh, but they are amplifying them. And the point they are making is that the system is irrevocably broken and you should give up on it. Do you think that the courts at this moment in time are and do have a more significant role in upholding democratic institutions than, say, I don't know, any time in recent memory, recent history? I do think so. I think, um, uh, sadly, I think our the other two branches of government are seem uh, not able to step up, mm-hmm. and uh, and so we are putting an awful lot of weight on the courts to to keep us on the right path. You are at a conference right now with the Ninth Circuit. What are you telling people who are indeed involved, whether they're they're judges or involved? in the legal system on how to respond to this moment we're in. They get it right away. They understand very well how vulnerable they are to messaging that would undermine public confidence in in their decisions and their processes and their fairness. And so they understand that they have an obligation to live up to our aspirations Mm -hmm. for our justice system. But there is a limit to what they can do. You know, judges are typically reticent to do a lot of public speaking, uh, though some are certainly more active than others. And there's a very strong and I think wise policy against explaining your decisions. And so there is a need for the rest of us to be prepared to step up and help clear up misinformation and disinformation and educate the public. And so one of the things we're doing is trying to develop a a kind of rapid response network across the country of credible voices within communities who uh, are able to sort of see these kinds of information campaigns developing online and be prepared to help the public understand what the facts are. Who are the best community voices or messengers? I mean, we've talked about the fact that so many institutions now either have been discredited or have discredited themselves. And it seems to me there are very few messengers that can kind of cut across the political and partisan divides. We are looking to find credible voices in communities, but it is harder than ever in our incredibly divided country. I've been involved in national security issues for years, and there have been any number of times when we've talked about needing credible messengers on issues. And often we've looked to faith leaders. And sadly, I've I've been told uh, by a number of folks that even faith leaders now are, you know, people identify them with one side or the other. And it may mean there is no one voice. You have to get voices from, from across the divide. Part of what we need is we need to have a more receptive audience, right? And so we really see civic education as a national security imperative and something that really needs to be reinvigorated in our schools and in our communities. What would success look like in your work? I think success would be that the sizable segment of the population stands up and says, this is not right. This is not acceptable. 
that they stand up against uh, even you know comments from our public officials that undermine public confidence uh, in the impartiality and, and 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 fairness of our justice system in ways that are really unfair and misleading and and pernicious and dangerous, and that members of Congress would stand up and defend our uh, institutions with all their flaws. Um, so I think that's you know part of what success would look like if we could go to communities and find a credible voice that could speak and reach across this divide. Um, I think that would be a sign of progress. Uh, you know, resilience against this kind of effort to weaken us, you know, really is what we're striving for. Suzanne Spaulding, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Amy, thanks so much for having me. Suzanne Spaulding is Senior Advisor for Homeland Security and International Security Programs at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. She's the former Undersecretary for Cyber and Infrastructure Protection at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. I think it helps to take a step back and think about what disinformation is. That's Lisa Kaplan. She's a former Senate staffer. And in 2018, she was the digital director for Senator Angus King's re-election campaign. In 2019, she founded the Aletheia Group, an organization whose mission is to counter and mitigate disinformation. One thing that Director Mueller laid out very clearly in his report is that it's the systematic dissemination of falsehoods with the intention to make you believe something that isn't true. And so what's really happening is these nefarious actors are spreading falsehoods in the hopes that you, as the voter or the consumer, will see it, believe it, and change your behavior. I think what's important to note here is that it targets not just candidates, but it targets conversations. Did you know anything about this digital world before you had started working on this campaign? Or did you basically have to figure this out yourself? So I knew how to run a digital campaign. In terms of the more defensive measures, that's the stuff we had to figure out. This is an emerging threat. And it's something that is metastasizing and changing as time goes on. And so we had to be able to figure out what we would do that would make sense for us in protecting our goal. Can you give us an example of something that you caught in protecting the campaign and the integrity of information that was getting put out into the public sphere? We did see instances of social media manipulation. We did see um, instances of false narratives being put out targeting our voters. And we were able to take the appropriate action in order to address those. So if it's happening in a Senate race in Maine, that means it's happening everywhere, right? I think it's absolutely happening everywhere. And I think that that is where the emphasis should be, is it's not just a Senate race in Maine. It's not just a presidential campaign. It's every conversation that could potentially be used to be pulled into a broader narrative and make somebody believe something that isn't true with the hopes that they'll then change their behavior. It's almost as if we've given these nefarious actors a news channel or a way into our homes so that they can tell us things that are false and it becomes the dinner table conversation that we have later that night. How hard is it convincing people? I mean, I was just thinking myself about, I think of myself as a, a 
as a very well-read person, and I, I, I want to get duped by things. I mean, I, 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 and I, if you told me I was being duped, I'd probably be pretty offended. So, how do you have a conversation with people about this stuff, which is is kind of an emotional conversation, right? As much as it is about security and just general digital information. So I think it's an important conversation to have. And we have to be cognizant of the fact that disinformation targets our own biases. It's really trying to make us believe things that are one or two inches away from the truth. And it keeps distorting narratives as time goes on. And so we're all susceptible. It doesn't matter how well read you are. It doesn't matter how um, how much you've studied the issue. We all have issues that a nefarious actor could target to make us change our perceptions of an issue. If you're on a campaign, any size campaign, what are you supposed to do about this? How are you, especially if you're just like a small race, you don't have a whole ton of money, you don't have maybe the most sophisticated computer literate or digitally literate folks on your campaign, how are you supposed to protect yourself? My biggest piece of advice is to go out and look for disinformation and not to wait for it to come to you. If you wait for something to become a news story that isn't true, you're already fighting an uphill battle and you've potentially already lost. However, if we can remember that disinformation is trying to target your voters and make them see something, believe something that isn't true, and change their behavior, we're able to get more tactical about what it is that we're looking for. And so I think it's important here to draw a distinction. We're a democracy. We value freedom of speech. There are some people who just don't like your candidate, and that's okay. But what's not okay is when a foreign government or a nefarious actor is using social media manipulation techniques to be able to disseminate falsehoods to your voters. Talk to us about what your expectations are for 2020. It seems to me that we know more than ever, and yet I don't know that we're more prepared than ever. What do you think? I agree with that. I'm very worried that we're going to be doing the same thing and expecting a different outcome. Two main things that struck me about the testimony yesterday that Director Mueller gave was there was an exchange with Representative Will Hurd. And um, essentially, the congressman asked Director Mueller, what can we do um, to prepare ourselves and to stop this from happening again? And Director Mueller noted Uh, the ability of our intelligence agencies to work together in this arena is perhaps more important than that. And adopting whatever, and I'm not that familiar with uh, legislation, but whatever uh, legislation will encourage uh, us working together by us, I mean the FBI, CIA, NSA and the rest, uh, it should be pursued aggressively early. So what struck me about that is first that it had to be said in July of 2019, we need to start doing more as the United States government to be able to combat this threat is the sense that I got from Director Mueller's answer. 
So that left me to think, if we know that the Russians are actively doing this, they're not waiting for us to have one more meeting. Mm -hmm. And if we know that, you know, it's been well documented that the Iranian government, for example, has started using similar techniques and that these tools are cheap and easy to access and there's been little consequence, that it's only going to keep happening. And to me, it sounds like campaigns and organizations and voters need to start doing things to protect themselves and be start to really play an active role in fighting back against this information warfare that we've been drawn into. Lisa Kaplan, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you. Lisa Kaplan is the founder of the Aletheia Group. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Politics with Amy Walter. The issue of student debt is getting more attention in the Democratic primary than at any time in recent memory. Not only are candidates putting out their own plans to tackle the problem, but they're also opening up about their own student loan debt. College affordability is personal for us. Chasson and I have six-figure student debt. At almost every town hall event, at least one person will stand up to tell their own story of how their crushing debt level has impacted their life. What emerges is a complicated picture of how we got here and how difficult it is to get out of it. M.H. Miller, an editor for The New York Times, has given a lot of thought to these complexities. Last year, he wrote a piece about his debt in The Baffler called Been Down So Long, It Looks Like Debt to Me, which quickly went viral. I mean, it started mostly by just attending private university that I couldn't really afford which for the most part was something I didn't think about until my last year of college when it became clear that uh, I was probably headed for six figures of debt upon graduation. And in my last year of college, which roughly began the time that uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed, I graduated sort of in the heart of the recession. In that year, both of my parents lost their jobs and eventually defaulted on their mortgage And by the time I was reaching my final semester of college, it was clear that I was going to have to go into a lot deeper debt just in order to graduate so that all of the debt I had taken out previously wouldn't have been completely useless. You start your piece by talking about the fact that both of your parents were laid off during the recession. But did you know as you were starting your college experience that you were going to leave college with a lot of debt, and it was going to be a challenge. Yeah, I knew I was borrowing a lot of money, but I think the terms of that debt sort of changed after my parents lost everything that they had because the discussions that I had with them in 2004, 2005, when I had been accepted to NYU, which is where I went to school, 
you know, it was that this is very expensive and you've been accepted to a lot of other good colleges, but this is this is kind of the best one and this is an amazing opportunity. And this is a real investment toward financial success, creative success. This is the right decision and we'll find a way to make it work. My parents certainly were not expecting to lose their jobs or their house. I wasn't expecting that either. And in their defense, uh, neither were most economists. The recession is sort of presented as having come out of nowhere um, and and everybody sort of waking up with the realization that, uh, you know, the American economy was not stable. And when that became clear, uh, all of this debt I had taken on, it took on a much darker tone at that point. Can you tell us how much debt you actually, as you were graduating, what kind of debt you were looking at? Sure. It was about $109,000, I believe. When I finished school, I was 22, and I had, yeah, about $110,000 of debt. I'd have to start paying it off uh, within six months. At that time, I had just received a freelance contract from a newspaper called the New York Observer, which essentially paid me $2,000 a month. The total amount of loan payments I had to make each month, uh, it was about $1,100 spread out between federal and private loans. Mm. And that was just, it was impossible to pay. Uh, I made, after taxes, about $900 every two weeks. So just doing the numbers, subtracting like my rent from the amount of money I made from my job my first year out of school, that alone left me with less money uh, than it would take to make a single loan payment. There was one excerpt in particular from Michael's essay that I thought really got to the heart of the value our country seems to place on a college degree. I asked him to read it. The problem, I think, runs deeper than blame. The foundational myth of an entire generation of Americans was the false promise that education was priceless, that its value was above or beyond its cost. I asked Michael to elaborate on that point. We're far past blame. You know, there was a time in which I resented my my parents for not saying, don't do this. But that's also kind of useless because I think what they wanted was the best for me. And that was why they encouraged this decision. And we believed that that this was the best decision that that we could make. I I just I think it it took decades of bad policy decisions to lead us to a situation where people are going into excessive debt merely for an education. And our culture is one that dictates that an education is essential, that it's necessary to have a meaningful adulthood and to have anything resembling a success. And yet, at the same time, the price of that education became only more prohibitive. Obviously, we're at a time where we have a number of candidates vying for the Democratic nomination. They are coming out with various plans to tackle the student loan debt crisis. Mm -hmm. When you hear, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, both of them are talking about wiping out a certain amount all to a certain amount of student debt. Do you support something like that? Yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough to sell a book for a lot of money so that I could pay off my debt. But I think that that was a a kind of exceptional situation. Most people are not going to just come into a lot of money. No matter how hard they work, (laughs) it's just not going to happen. And that is sort of the only way 
to get out of this situation is to basically find a lotto ticket. So I think we need to be talking about things like debt jubilees again. And I think we're living in an age where we've seen time and time again that this financial system doesn't work for people. It didn't work for my parents with their mortgage. And, you know, it, it hasn't really worked for me with my student loan debt, which became very similar to a mortgage for me, just something that followed me around for my adulthood. In covering politics for all these many years, I don't think I've had as many candidates willing to openly discuss their own debt. For sure. This is a thing that people don't talk about. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. I made a lot of foolish decisions as a teenager that are haunting me as an adult still. You know, it's not really useful or necessary to ignore. We, we can talk about it now. It's been so normalized and in the expense of college has been so normalized it, it's sort of been taught to people that you're going to go into debt for college and that's okay you'll find a way to pay it off but it, it, it shouldn't be normal it's it's deranged that something as important as an education would cause the ruination of entire families and I mean having watched my parents suffer to the extent that they did I mean, maybe my degree got me a job and a career, but it also gave me an extraordinarily deeply unpleasant experience with trying to just live as a human being. You'll be living in your parents' basement clutching your degrees and, and you know, skipping meals in, in order to, to make a payment to a bank that just raised your interest for no reason without telling you. M.H. Miller is an editor for The New York Times, He's currently writing a memoir about his experience with student debt. And we've been hearing from you. Hi, this is Erica from Seattle. And yes, I do have student loan debt for my master's degree. I feel like I'm never going to be able to pay it off no matter how much I make, which I know isn't true. But I was considerably lower income when I completed it 10 years ago and had to defer the payments for the maximum amount of time allowed. My name is Robert from Shadyside, Ohio. Um, both my wife and I have student debt. She has a master's degree and I have a bachelor's degree. Combined, we currently have over $50,000 in student loan debt remaining with a monthly payment of $830. We've both combined our student loans in private refinancing. Uh, and our goal is to uh, wipe out our debt by early 2020. Yes, I have student loans. I had a big student loan when I started and I uh, avoided paying those because I wasn't making much money in the beginning. And now, you know, I'm doing other things. I'm trying to get my own business going and I, my interest has capitalized. And so now I just owe just a massive amount and it's not pretty and I'm not happy about it. What I owe is not worth the education I got. When it comes to student debt, stories like the ones you just heard aren't one-offs. In fact, last year, the total amount of student debt owed in the United States reached a staggering $1.5 trillion. It's the second largest share of consumer debt owed in the country. It's a huge number. It's growing. And its implications are vast. 
I mean, you have to think about it in simple terms, right? If any money that is going towards one thing is not going towards other things, and those other things could be things that would spur further economic growth, like purchasing homes, cars, all the like. That's Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, a reporter covering the economics of education for The Washington Post. And it's not that student debt prevents you from doing those things. It's just that it is difficult to save the money needed to make a down payment, to save the money needed to purchase a car. If hundreds and hundreds of dollars are going towards this one bill for an extended amount of time, you know, it used to be that for a lot of people, they'd borrow so much that they could pay back in 10 years or so. For a lot of people, that's actually taking a lot longer. And that's where we start thinking about the economic impact and what's being missed out, the missed opportunities as a result of that extended repayment process. A big chunk of this debt is owed directly to the U.S. government. The federal government makes maybe 92 percent of all student loans at this stage um, because of the end of a program that the government used to have with private lenders back in 2010 or so. And a part of that was because it was an expensive program and it was cheaper for the government to lend directly to students. The other thing that a lot of Democrats will say is that we don't really want private lenders to have too much share in the market because they have often have onerous terms. This is where the government should have a role, this is Democrats saying this now, in making sure that families can have low-cost options for financing education. Now, low cost is a very subjective uh, term because uh, parent loans, for instance, a federal program has interest rates at six six point eight percent or so. I think right now that's 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 pretty high. Plus, there are origination fees for like two percent of the the total of the loan. In, in addition, I mean, it, this is a state of play right now. One of the biggest reasons that these payments are increasingly harder to afford is because the price of a college education has risen across the board, regardless of where you decide to go to school. There are a few things going on. Uh, If we start off with public colleges and universities, as states have appropriated less money for their public institutions, you have seen institutions try to offset the loss of money by increasing tuition. It's a trend that's been getting worse. Public universities have been steadily defunded over the decades. Think about most states, say, 1970s state appropriations covered oftentimes up to 75% of public university operational budgets. Now that can be anywhere from nothing to up to 20 to 30%. And that definitely varies depending on the region, depending on if it's a flagship versus a regional school. When schools lose out on state money, they often make cuts in the services provided, and they're also forced to raise tuition. The statewide cuts being effectively passed off onto a shrinking pool of potential students. But public colleges are only part of the higher education landscape. How do we account for rising tuition at private schools? If you think about private universities, uh, part of it is, I hate to call it an arms race of sorts, but certainly trying to chase prestige, trying to ensure that they have the newest and the greatest in order to attract students has, in some cases, led to an increase in tuition. And this arms race isn't exactly working out for a lot of these private colleges. What you often find is that the sticker price that these schools post and promote isn't exactly what all students are paying. You have some students who pay full price, and then you have lots who are getting tuition discounts. And those discounts, because they've become 
more and more steep as so many schools are chasing a dwindling population of college-going students that they can't sustain them. So we're seeing lots of schools, especially in the Northeast where I'm at, starting to close in in New England in particular because they just don't have the operational budget in order to withstand the fact that enrollment is flat or sometimes diminishing in many of their schools and they are not making money. But like so many of the problems facing families in the U.S., the causes of unaffordable tuition are many. Regardless of where you end up going to school, if you have stagnant wages, which is what we've seen for several decades, if families just not earning enough to save for college, then they're going to have to start relying on more financial aid. And for many people, that means student loans. And when most of your education is financed through student loans, then you're going to see this increase in this $1.5 trillion amount of student debt. The effects of this debt ripple throughout society, perpetuating cycles of poverty and impacting communities of color. We have, through an enormous body of research, realized that Black and Latinos, especially African Americans, have a disproportionate impact of student loans, right? They tend to borrow more often and borrow more for myriad reasons, mainly racial wealth gap, uh, not having the resources to cover college. Well, if you're borrowing a lot of money, going into the teaching profession, which does not pay all that well in many instances, does not look very attractive. The other thing that I thought was really interesting in in a lot of the research that I've done on the issue is that a lot of uh, African-American teachers in particular have have a tendency to teach in low-income communities that they feel need them. And as a result, unfortunately, those schools don't pay as much as other places. So now you have a lot of debt, you're not making a lot of money, and you're making less money than a colleague who is in a suburban school. So it's, it's not the most attractive proposition. For many prospective students, just considering or getting a student loan is often more a challenge than it should be. I think the the whole student financial aid system needs to be overhauled. I don't see anything wrong with borrowing money to attend college uh, if you don't have the means to do it. I do see a lot wrong with the way the system operates right now and how frustrating it could be to get a straight answer for very simple things. I would love to see someone start addressing the plans that we have now, simplify them, make it uh, a lot easier for people to get transparent information. My, my fear oftentimes in reporting some of these stories is that I don't want a generation of students to think I'm going to forego college because I don't want to take on student debt. You can take on debt and pay it back. I, I fear sometimes when we start calling this a crisis, we're scaring off students who are otherwise going to probably do very well by borrowing a little bit of money if they have to, uh, to go to, to college and, and make a, a lifetime of earnings that would really help them as well as their family. But why is there such an urgent focus on student debt at this particular moment? I think we have a few things going on. There has been a very active movement among millennials to be very frank and open about their financial situation, and that's kind of brought that into the fore. Then you are also seeing that when you start talking trillion-dollar numbers, <laughs> it's, it's hard to ignore that, right? And in some respects, I wouldn't say it, it snuck up on us, per se, but it, it was one of those things where it's creeping, it's creeping, and then all of a sudden you look behind your back and you're like, oh, wow, that's here, and we have to do something to address that. With the 2020 presidential campaigns already well underway, we're starting to hear several different options on how this crisis could be fixed. It's interesting because I think you are starting to see, especially in the Democratic presidential campaign, how various candidates think about this crisis or this burden um, kind of reflect 
what their understanding is, is who's suffering the most. And with the crowded field of candidates, this issue of debt and college tuition has provided a space for Democrats to distinguish themselves from one another. I like to think about it as a spectrum of being radical, conservative, and on the more conservative side, you have folks who have called for an increase in Pell Grants for low-income students. That would be like Amy Klobuchar has called for this. Extending Pell Grants so it includes more students. Those are simply grants, right? Julian Castro has called for this. And today I'm releasing a People First Education plan. The idea here would be let's really target our assistance to the students who have the least amount of resources. Then if you kind of move along that spectrum, then you start talking about tuition-free college. Now, this could be either two-year or four-year. On the two-year camp, still Klobuchar, she is not for four-year college. She just thinks it is economically untenable. I wish I could staple a free college diploma under every one of your children. I do. Don't look. It's not there. The four-year side, you have Biden. We could put them all in, all of them, all of them free in a community college. You have Harris. Well, I support anything that is about reducing the debt of student loans, and I think that's an important conversation to have. You have Buttigieg, but Buttigieg initially was not for tuition-free or free college because he thought that, or and said, that it would be unfair. I think the children of the wealthiest Americans can pay at least a little bit of tuition. He hasn't exactly turned from that position, but he is saying now that... I also believe in free college for low- and middle-income students for whom cost could be a barrier. As well as beef up existing programs for public service loan forgiveness by having like a year in the Peace Corps count towards uh, public service loan forgiveness, that kind of thing. If you move further along the spectrum, then you start talking about uh, student loan forgiveness, right? So you have Elizabeth Warren who has come up with a means-tested plan whereby there'd be like a income household income threshold that would offer up to fifty thousand dollars worth of student loan forgiveness. Student loan debt is crushing an entire generation of Americans. And I got a plan to fix it. And I think she said that her projections or at least some analysis of it would allow for about 95 percent of people who currently have loans would have some form of loan forgiveness. You move further, further, further on the spectrum, you have Bernie Sanders. It is time to hit the reset button. Under the proposal that we introduced today, all student debt would be canceled in six months. So and then his idea here is that we can't have just some people being able to benefit from this because if there's a wider spread benefit, there is more buy-in and perhaps more longevity. Both Warren and Sanders have proposed paying for these plans by taxing the wealthy in Warren's case or Wall Street in Sanders' case. Is one considered more efficient or better than the other, this idea of having a free college tuition at public colleges and universities versus wiping out the student debt. I think free college or tuition-free college, let's be very specific here about what that is, is more politically appetizing. And for a lot of folks, you know, you've seen a lot of wonky higher ed uh, policy folks saying that debt forgiveness is regressive. It would just benefit the wealthiest, and that's not the best use of federal policy. Whereas more folks have kind of coalesced around the idea that some sort of tuition benefit could be more beneficial for people who want to go into vocational programs, for people who do want to pursue four-year degrees, and therefore be more beneficial to the economy eventually. So we're seeing a lot more interest and a 
agreement around the free college movement. I think part of that also is because this is something that came up in 2016. And it kind of gave more momentum to something that honestly was a very organic grassroots movement that was happening at the state level and still is. There are 19 states that have some form of tuition-free college for their residents. We talked a lot about Democrats and their plans, but what are you hearing from Republicans, either the Trump administration and or Republicans in Congress? So the Trump administration has really tried to address simplifying some of the programs in the financial aid system. But oftentimes that just means cutting, not necessarily streamlining. And that's been problematic. One one plan that had gotten a lot of attention would be to simplify the income-driven repayment program. This is a program that pegs how much you pay a month in your student loans to how much you're making. And and people thought that that would be a great idea in some respects. But he also wants to cut a lot of financial aid programs for low-income students, and that's not so hot. It's an interesting time right now to be having these discussions about student debt and uh, tuition-free college and all because the act that governs all of higher education, the Higher Education Act, is up for reauthorization. It hasn't been reauthorized in many, many years, and there seems to actually be momentum to get it done before uh, Senator Lamar Alexander leaves Congress. He is the chair of the Senate committee that would be handling this. So all of the these issues are up for debate. Are the divides between the parties really more philosophical than anything else, where Republicans just really like the idea of a private market and a private system versus Democrats who want to see more government influence and more government funding? Or is there something else going on? I think it's it's mainly the uh, philosophical difference about the role the government should have in financial matters. This is a state of play right now, and there needs to be some discussion about what is the goal here. Is it to help families afford uh, education? Is it to make money off of the loans? Is it a public benefit, a societal good, or is it something that should be a private benefit and therefore individuals pay for it anyhow they can? Danielle Douglas-Gabriel, thank you so much for talking us through this. Thank you. Danielle Douglas-Gabriel is a reporter covering the economics of education for The Washington Post. And here's one more thing for me today. We began the show talking about this week's Mueller testimony and election interference. And we've come to take polarization and partisanship as a fact of life. It's just one of those things we have to endure, like traffic or humidity. But the cost of this polarization is significant. It makes it easier for bad actors to exploit and undermine our democracy. They don't need to convince us to distrust or deny things we hear from people or institutions we don't like. We're already doing a pretty good job of that ourselves. It took a long time to get us to this place, and it's not going to be easy to get out of it. The incentive system to continue on this path is strong. Politicians gain followers and voters and donations by denouncing institutions as rigged or corrupt. Media companies have built a business model that relies almost entirely on manufactured outrage. And we also are hardwired as human beings to seek out information that confirms our own belief system. It's a truly toxic brew. The best way to defend against foreign interference isn't just about investing in better election infrastructure. It's about reordering our incentive infrastructure. It doesn't require an act of Congress. It just requires a collective will to be better and do better by our democracy. 
That's all for us today. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or you want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, you can call us anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway.